Good morning, everyone. Shall we pray? Father God, thank you for your word. Your word that is truth, that divides between soul and spirit, in joint and marrow, that uh, brings light into the darkness, that reveals the true state of our hearts, reveals our sinfulness and our, our deep need for a Savior. And Lord, we thank you that you have provided such a Savior your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of, of, of new life. So, Lord, we ask that you would uh, bless this time now by your spirit, that your spirit would indeed speak to us through your word and that you would be glorified during this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to say um, thank you to the Previous two speakers this morning, Dr. Mulder and uh, Reverend Mashanini, who've really laid a, a fantastic foundation thing for what, what I'm going to speak about now. And they've laid kind of a, a bird's eye view of, of all this. And what I'm going to do now is zoom into a, almost a case study of, of applying a, a, well, exposing a, a not so great hermeneutic and applying. Uh, a biblically reformed hermeneutic um, to equip us in how to um, to go forward with this. What I'm going to focus on is the, the topic is charismatic excess and the prophetic witness of Scripture. And all of us here who are, who are ministering in in the African context, we we know all too well that our context is dominated by movements such as the prosperity gospel. Uh, the Word of Faith movement, the what is called the New Apostolic Reformation, the NAR, um, Pentecostalism, um, and the Charismatic streams. And I'm well, sure there's certainly nuances in these streams, differences in the streams, but they do share a lot in, in common. And primarily, we would say they are all continuationists. And so what we would mean by this term is that um, it's a broad description of uh, movements which believe that signs and wonders are still to be expected as a part of the ordinary Christian life. Secondly, it would believe that God still speaks to us through extra-biblical prophecies and words of knowledge. And that thirdly, they would also believe that the offices of apostle and prophet still function today. So you may be thinking, well, so what? What can be so bad about believing in some of these things? And what I hope to unpack as, in a part, as a part of this talk is that these continuationist beliefs have a profound impact on our hermeneutic on how we interpret scripture, in other words. And typically, okay, not in a positive way. In fact, there are many dangers inherent to a continuous hermeneutic that have serious consequences for how we teach and preach the word of God, how we teach and preach the gospel. And through that, in very important and um, pastoral implications too, because our preaching and teaching directly affects um, how we pastor our people. And so all this to say is that this matters 
because all this touches on some pretty fundamental issues. Now, the reality is that most of our students that are coming to our institutions, most of the, the people that we are interacting every day in our classes are coming to our place, our institutions, with these continuationist assumptions. And so, as those of us who are involved in theological education, uh, we've got to be equipped how to handle uh, our students who have these assumptions. And it's, it's so important because, really, the main outcome of theological education should be that our students are equipped to rightly handle the word of truth, as 2 Timothy chapter 2.15 says, in order that they would be faithful ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our task as theological educators is to winsomely persuade them that there is a better and more biblical way to interpret Scripture than the continuationist hermeneutic, which invariably they have um, absorbed somewhere down the line. And so we need to demonstrate in our teaching and in our handling of Scripture that a classic reformed hermeneutic, or what we call a redemptive historical hermeneutic, is the most God-glorifying and gospel-centered way that we can handle the Word of God. Now, on a more personal note, matter of confession time here, um, you may not know this, but at one, for a lot of my life, I was a fully convinced, tongue-speaking, charismatic, a true believer. Okay, I've got the, the credentials here. Okay, I used to teach charismatic theology. Um, I preached charismatic sermons. I uh, spoke words of knowledge in the, yeah, in, in, in the various churches where I ministered. I, I even taught people how to prophesy and how to heal and how to, how to do signs and wonders and everything else in, in between. So I ministered in this charismatic environment for about 10 years. And the more I got into it, the more I started to see firsthand the deep problems that are associated with this movement, and most notably, the destructive pastoral issues that often result from, from all of this. And I'm thankful to the Lord that He, he graciously moved me out of it as he, he predestined me into Reformed theology, of course. <laughs> so it is important to note, though, that we've got to approach this issue with, with some charity. Because okay, there's a tendency, especially when we deal with, with these things, to, um, to misrepresent each other. And so the, the typical continuationist or charismatic per perception of cessationists is that, oh, you guys don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, you guys don't believe that the Holy Spirit works in, in lives today. And you know what? This is simply not true. I mean, and frankly, it's, it's slanderous. And as those of us in a more conservative evangelical and reformed environment know, that we certainly do believe that the Holy Spirit works today in our lives, and we believe that He's very much active and 
doing all sorts of things. So when people make these claims, it really shows that they haven't properly understood the cessationist position. But on the other hand, if we have to look perhaps more inward, there's also a tendency of some cessationists to have some uncharitable views of continuationists. And I experienced this on the other side when I was in the charismatic world. There's this perception amongst some cessationists who think that, well, you know, we got to write off all those crazy charismatics as a bunch of heretics. Now, certainly, okay, we'll get into this. There, there are certainly some heretical beliefs in all this. Um, and there's some, you know, amongst in the continuationist world, certainly. But amongst continuationists are some genuinely earnest Bible-believing Christians. Um, and they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we, we need to be very careful not to simply write them off because they belong to a Pentecostal denomination or whatever it is. So just to say in all this is that there's a danger on both sides of the chasm here to, to straw man each other, okay, to misrepresent each other. And really that, that's not helpful. So I'm going to be, you know, try my best to accurately represent the continuationist position in a way that I taught it. In, back in the day, and then to deal and critique it all in a respectful but truthful manner. So let's dive straight into it. I think you've got your outlines, your printouts there you can follow. Um, let's look firstly at a continuationist hermeneutic 101. Obviously, this is, you know, I'm kind of flying over these, these things. There's obviously a lot more detail in all of this. But firstly, what is fundamental to a charismatic hermeneutic is the view of the kingdom of God. And so typically continuationists have an understanding of the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. And they would say that Jesus' earthly ministry is an example of the kingdom of God breaking through onto earth. So while Jesus was on earth ministering, he said that he made heaven a reality on earth by reversing the curse, by confronting the powers of darkness. And he achieved all this through the proclamation of the gospel and through what the continuationists would call it, a demonstration of the gospel, which means for them signs and wonders, healing of the sick, the casting out of the demons, raising of the dead, opening blind eyes. And so these signs and wonders overturn the work of Satan. Broken and demonized people are healed and delivered, blind, eyes are opened, the hungry are fed. And so they believe that this kingdom ministry of Jesus didn't just stop with Jesus. This is one of the fundamental premises of the charismatic position. It doesn't just stop with Jesus. And instead... Um, it carried on through the apostles. He empowered his disciples and later the apostles to continue this kingdom ministry. And you see that throughout the, the, the book of Acts, um, where the apostles do, do the same signs and wonders as, as Jesus. But it doesn't even stop there in the charismatic continuationist position. There's a belief that these signs and wonders didn't cease in the apostolic age, but instead they are to carry on to the present day 
And in fact, every believer in Christ should expect to do perform this exactly the same signs and wonders that Jesus and the apostles performed whenever they proclaim the gospel. So it is said that all they would call spirit-filled believers have been given the same power and the same authority that Jesus granted to his disciples. So implicit here is what we call second blessing a theology, which is a characteristic of Pentecostal theology, and it's this belief in a, in a two-tier Christianity, that there are some supposed carnal Christians who've only received Jesus, and then there are the real, spiritual, anointed Christians who've had a, a mystical experience of the Holy Spirit, and they're the true Christians who now can, are, are moving in, in all the, the, these miraculous things. And so an exa- a passage that's, that's used to justify the, the continuation, the, this expectation that the gifts, the miracle signs and wonders are to be a normal part of Christianity today is a verse like John 14, verse 12, which uh, essentially says, it's Jesus saying to his disciples that you will do even greater works than he did, even greater works than these. And they interpret those works to mean signs and wonders. Now, one of the, the leaders of the present day word of faith movement is a man called Bill Johnson. Maybe familiar to you. He's the pastor of Bethel Church in Redding in Northern California. And he has this, the Bethel movement and particularly Bill Johnson has uh, had a profound effect on the South African church. Um, his books are in all the bookstores. He's, you know, whole groups of young adults um, from various South African cities make their pilgrimage to, to Bethel and spend a year at their school of, of, of supernatural wizardry. And uh, that's where the glory mountain is, is associated. They've got to go there to get this anointing. And so what Bill Johnson, the leader of this church, he openly states that if signs and wonders do not accompany the preaching of the gospel, then a false gospel is being preached. That's a bold claim to make. And he goes further. And he says that um, if your understanding of the gospel is that it is just about, just about the forgiveness of sins, then that's a defective understanding of the gospel. And Johnson, in fact, he calls the gospel of forgiveness of sins actually a, quote, different gospel. Instead, the true, or what they call the full gospel, is intrinsically connected to signs and wonders. And how so? I believe that on the cross, Jesus not only accomplished forgiveness of sins through uh, the atonement, but it is also said that healing is guaranteed as well through the atonement. And this is a classic Pentecostal doctrine as well. So it goes, therefore, that because healing is, is guaranteed in the atonement, Signs and wonders then are expected as an integral part of the proclamation 
of the gospel. So they would say the good news, the, the, the gospel is miracles. The gospel is healing and deliverance. It is good news that a sick person gets healed. So they equate the very miracles themselves as the gospel expressed in action. So the gospel as they claim that the gospel is in fact works. We will unpack that a bit more as we move on. So now obviously there are varying degrees of the understanding of the nature of, of the already and the not yet of the kingdom among continuationists. There'd be some more cautious continuationists who would say that um, healing and signs and wonders uh, do happen. And that's an example of the already of the kingdom. And when they don't happen, that's just an example of the not yet of the kingdom. And there, there is a recognition to some of them that there's a mystery in all this. And so they don't always expect miracles. The thing is, the far majority... <laughs> Of the continuationist world sees things differently. So this is the word of faith folks, the Pentecostal guys, charismatics, Bill Johnson crowd. And they would say that it is the norm that miracles should happen. And so they always want to live in what they say, the now of the kingdom. So essentially they have, they believe in an over-realized eschatology. It's all now, heaven on earth. And so our job therefore, is to usher in, as disciples of Jesus, usher in heaven on earth. Make the reality, the heaven a reality on earth. In heaven, there's no one who's sick and dying and um, all that. And that reality must now be established on earth. And that's expected. But when that doesn't happen, when people don't get healed, and where signs and wonders don't happen, how do they rationalize it? Well, they will say that, well... There's a lack of faith. Essentially, the problem is not on God's side. It's on our side. Because there, it all comes down to the, the view of God. They, only, they believe that God only wills good things. Because their theology it, it, it precludes that God can ordain suffering. It is impossible, they believe, that... That sickness, suffering, and persecution can be a part of the will of God. So a big part of, the, of all this, of the continuations, charismatic hermeneutic, is that well, there's no theology of suffering. Now, obviously, that has massive implications in preaching and teaching, but even more significant implications in the pastoral ministry, which we'll get to. Okay, so firstly, they the, looked at the continuationist view of the kingdom of God. Secondly, let's look at the continuationist view of, of Christology, or their view of, of who Jesus is. Now, at the heart of continuationist theology lies a theory that is known as the kenosis theory. And this theory was developed by 19th century German liberal theologians. And it's derived from the Greek word kenao, and that's the Greek word that's used in Philippians 2, verse 7, where it describes Jesus' self-emptying. He, became, he, um, he came down from heaven, he took the form of a servant, and it's describing his state during um, his incarnation, his, his self-emptying. And so 
The conclusion that the continuationists draw from this is that during Jesus' time on earth, he emptied himself of his divinity, of his divine attributes. And so it is said, for example, that while he was ministering on earth, he, he, he was not omnipresent. He was just in one place. He was not omnipotent. He was not all-powerful. He was not omniscient. He didn't know everything. And that he, he did deliberately did not, he chose not to display any of his divine attributes at all. And instead, it is said that during his time on earth, he existed only in his humanity. And how they justify this is that, well, say that when Jesus started to do his miracles, only once he'd been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, that's true. So they'd say because of this, it's argued that Jesus performed his miracles not through any divine power of his own. Instead, he performed his miracles. He did all his signs and wonders purely as an ordinary man like you and me who was baptized in the Spirit. Now, hopefully you can see where this is all going. Okay, they, they, they would say then that the, Jesus' miracles are, in, are interpreted to be various demonstrations of the gifts of the Spirit that we find in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12. So let me give you some examples how they... Um, interpret these scriptures. So when Jesus supernaturally knew about the Samaritan's woman pa- woman's past in John 4, I would say, you know, he was exercising. He was just a man, and he was exercising the gift of the word of knowledge. Okay, when he healed a paralytic in Matthew 9, well, he is just, he's exercising the gift of healing. Okay, when he answered the Pharisees in Matthew 22, he's just operating in the gift of wisdom. Or when he foretold the destruction of the temple in Matthew 24, here he's exercising the gift of prophecy. And when he walked on water in Matthew 14, he's exercising the gift of miracles. So the point of all this, and they will look at all the miracles in the gospel, and they will attribute all those miracles to the variety of the gifts of the Spirit that we see in 1 Corinthians 12. They said, Jesus exercised the gifts of the Spirit. He did these miracles just as a man relying on the spirit and so the natural implication of this is well so can we obviously and this is what bill johnson says clearly in his his work when heaven invades earth uh, from page 29 he says uh, jesus performed miracles and wonders and signs as a man in right relationship to god not as god If he performed miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. But if he did them as a man, I am responsible to pursue his lifestyle. End quote. Another quote from also When Heaven Invades Earth, page 79, says Jesus laid aside his divinity as he sought to fulfill the assignment given to him by the Father. So what's the implication of this? Well, it's that every single believer in Jesus who's baptized in the Spirit can do exactly the same miracles as Jesus. 
Because Jesus did miracles as, as a human being reliant on the Spirit, well, so can we, and we should expect to do so. So, in fact, they would say that the, the point of Jesus' miracles throughout the gospel is to show us that we can do them too. That it's showing us how we can live our, to our full potential as our Christian. And this is constantly communicated in the continuationist world if, that if there's no demonstration of the miraculous in your life, you know what? You are living a substandard Christian life. And miracles are seen as evidence that you're a true Christian, that you've really grasped the gospel. Now, a statement that Bill Johnson often repeats is that Jesus is perfect theology. Now, that initially it's, it sounds it sounds good, right? I mean, Jesus is great. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with Jesus. But the thing is, what he means by it is probably not what you think it means. So for Johnson, it means that because Jesus healed every single person who came to him, without exception, what that then means, he concludes from that, is that it is always God's will to heal no matter what. So therefore, when we, we pray for the sick, we, we to expect that, that God heals them. And if, if he doesn't, well, it's our problem. It's not God's. It's our lack of faith because in, his, in their minds, um, God promises always to heal without exception. Now, Johnson then takes this Jesus' perfect theology um, even further to show that, that Jesus' life in the Gospels is the hermeneutical grid through which all other scriptures need to be interpreted. Okay, this is very important. We want to understand, get to the heart of, of continuation hermeneutics. Because any other truths about God that are found in other parts of the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, they are seen as secondary to what one sees in Jesus' life. So, for example, when confronted with the book of Job and its uncomfortable truths about God permitting Satan to, to cause trouble in Job's, in Job's life, okay, if you don't have a theology of suffering, that's kind of a problem, the whole book of Job. Um, so because this doesn't fit with Johnson's understanding about Jesus to always will good and to always heal, what does he do? He completely disregards the book of Job. He actually says that. And so you see, this is how many continuationists, especially within the, the word of faith and the prosperity gospel and the NAR and the Pentecostal guys, get around the many biblical texts that show that God indeed does permit suffering in our lives and that he uses it ultimately uh, for, for his good. And so they would explain away these texts using a faulty hermeneutic that eliminates suffering from the will of God right from the outset. So I think it would be good now to, to look at a case study here to apply these uh, hermeneutical principles in, to a scripture and just to see where this goes. So you've got your Bibles here. You mind opening to Mark 4 from verses 35 to 41. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'll quickly describe it. 
And I want to just see how, give you an example of how a continuationist preacher would preach this text. Okay, would, would interpret this text. So what's happening in Mark 4 is that Jesus and his disciples are on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And, and soon they're in the midst of a, of a great windstorm. The waves are crashing onto the boat. And in the midst of all this, Jesus is, is sleeping. His disciples wake him up you know, urgently. And what does he do? Well, he speaks to the waves and the wind and he rebukes them. And he calls them to be still. And what is the result? Well, they're still. He, they are, the waters are calm. The wind ceases. And the result in verse 41, it says that the disciples are filled with great fear. And they exclaim, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So in our typical continuationist interpretation, and yes, I'll confess to you, I've preached a sermon um, along these lines in the past is that, well, brothers and sisters, just as Jesus calmed the wind and the waves with the word, so can you speak a word to the storms in your life and um, heal the sick with the word and cast out demons with the word and bring peace to chaos with a word. And you see, this is really is the goal of much of the, of the continuationist hermeneutic, is that it's, we, we see Jesus, it sees Jesus as a model for our own lives, of how we can reach our full potential by applying these principles of Jesus' life to our own lives. And the result of this hermeneutic is that it ends up being a fundamentally man-centered. It's all focused on us. It's man-centered and it's law-based. It all The moral of the story, the goal of the sermon is all leading us to, uh, to show more stuff that we need to do. Okay? It's, it's, you know, we need to perform more miracles or speak more... Words are knowledge. So it leads to one of two things in the pastoral ministry. When you would preach like this, and this is what I've seen myself, is firstly it's going to lead some people to spiritual pride. And then, oh man, yes, it's a, I'm, in their minds, they're doing these miracles. They are speaking these words every day. And it, you know, they, they get you know, puffed up. And they're like, yes, yeah, I'm ticking all the boxes. I'm... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing the signs and wonders. A minority in your congregation would, would a vocal minority in your congregation would, would, would be in that camp. But by far, the majority in a congregation is going to be absolutely crushed by this kind of preaching. And I learned this the hard way through people broken by sermons I was preaching coming into my office in tears, saying to me, I'm not Jesus. I feel like a failure as a Christian because I'm not doing this stuff. So there are deep implications to all this. So I want to turn now, change gear, and to this, the next section, 
and essentially now critique all this from a Reformed theological perspective. Firstly, I want to look at, at the kingdom of God. Now, we know that Reformed theology certainly affirms the already and the not yet paradigm of the kingdom of God. But we would typically draw different conclusions to the continuationist's understanding of this. So what we would affirm is that Jesus' ministry is an example of the now of the kingdom. But in, in, in this age, okay, between the, the cross and between the second coming of Christ, how we expect uh, glimpses of the now breaking into, in, into this age, um, well, we expect only glimpses, first of all, because we believe the, the real stuff's coming when Jesus returns. Okay, we, we, are, we are always hopeful as Christians because it, it, it's all, you know, the, the bulk of Jesus' promises are rooted in his, his return. But in the meantime, we're not left alone. Um, we experience, as Hebrews 6 says, the, the powers of the age to come breaking through into the present. And what does that typically look like in the church? Well, it looks like what we call the ordinary means of grace. Okay, and these are ways which God promises us through his word, with, and that he, which he ordinarily works in the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 88, tells us what the means of grace are. Um, and these are the, the uh, faithful preaching of the gospel, the word of God, uh, the, administ- the faithful administration of the sacraments and prayer. These are God's ordained ways of bringing the lost to salvation, of raising the dead to life, of transforming a heart of stone to a heart of flesh and building up and sustaining his church. Now, what we are not saying is that God cannot do miracles today. Because we know that one of the greatest miracles is what? Is regeneration. <laughs> yeah, you think of it. A sinner who is, who is hardened towards God is not even seeking him. The Spirit graciously works in his heart to awaken the dead heart to life. Raise him from the dead. Give him a heart of flesh. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. That is a miracle. And we celebrate those miracles. Hey, but in, in terms of um, signs and wonders, and perhaps even let's just look at this, this term of signs and wonders, I mean, which continuationists bandy about very liberally, um, you know, when a back gets healed and they'll say, oh, well, that, that's a, a sign and a wonder. I mean, biblically speaking, what is a sign and a wonder? I mean, it's the parting of the Red Seas. It's the calming of the storms. It's the resurrection of, of the, the, the dead. Um, those are signs and wonders. Yeah, let's get our categories right here, first of all. Um, but So God, look, God's sovereign. He can do what he wants. He's in the heavens. He can do what he wants. But signs and wonders today are typically not what God does not ordinarily do. So what do we mean by this? Well, 
God ordinarily forgives sins. Okay, that's, the, that's promised to us in our justification uh, through what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Okay, every sinner who receives Christ has their sins removed from them as far as the east is from the west. That's a guarantee from God for every single believer. Now, there's no such guarantee from God that every believer in Christ will do miracles or will heal the sick. Because it's not what God ordinarily does. If it were, well, then it would be the everyday experience of every believer without question, just as forgiveness of sins is. Yeah, regardless of their level of faith. But we know this from experience. We know this is not the case. Okay, God can do miracles by his sovereign power. I know of some people who God has miraculously healed of a disease. Praise the Lord. But it's not what he ordinarily, it's not what he usually does in his providence. So let's now look at the the purpose of Jesus' miracles. Now, biblically orthodox Christianity has always understood that Jesus' miracles act as signs. Again, this is especially the language of John's gospel. And that what does a sign do? It points to something. And so the signs and wonders in the gospels, they are pointing to Jesus's true identity and we the purpose of Jesus miracles like are explained clearly in gospel of John 20 30 to 31 which which states now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that as your purpose clause so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's clear here that Jesus' miracles are not an end in themselves. Okay, they're not just some magic tricks that he's doing. And nor are they meant to, to show us that, well, we too can have a ministry of, of signs and wonders. Instead, what is their purpose? Well, their purpose is to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is fulfilling all these Old Testament promises of him, that he is God himself, and therefore that he is worthy to be worshipped and praised, and that he's the object of our faith, and that we should believe in him. I just look at some examples of, of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels and how through a redemptive historical hermeneutic, we would look at these. Look at Matthew 8. Jesus drives out demons. And the continuation of say, ah, you see, shows that we, we can also drive out demons. Well, if we look at the text, what Jesus is doing is that he's demonstrating that he's the promised seed of the woman who's come to crush the head of the serpent. Okay, he's demonstrating his authority over Satan. Good Mark 6, the feeding of, of, of the 5,000. 
Okay, it's, it's not to show us that oh, well, we too can multiply bread. Well, it's, it's, instead it's to show us that Jesus does something that only God can do. And that is create something out of nothing. And more so that he's the true bread of heaven who, who sustained Israel uh, during the exodus. And now he's leading a new Israel to a new, through a new exodus. Hey, look at John 9. Jesus heals the blind man. And what was his response? Not that oh, I'm going to heal more blind people. It's that No, he worshipped him. So what it shows for us is that we need to understand Jesus' miracles in their redemptive historical context. In other words, we need to look at them as fulfillments of Old Testament expectations of the promised seed of the woman. Okay, remember, Genesis 3.15, the first announcement of the gospel that this God is going to send a champion. He's going to send a, a, a descendant of Eve who's going to come and destroy sin and crush the enemy and restore God's people to himself. And the rest of the Old Testament unpacks that, that very shadowy promise there in Genesis 15. And as the Old Testament unfolds, more promises and, and, and more shadows and types are, are revealed as as through the law, through the Psalms, through the prophets, until we get to the fulfillment of all those promises through Jesus in, 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 in the New Testament. That is what we call a, a, a redemptive historical hermeneutic. And that's, that's the classic historic, it's the, the classic reformed way of interpreting Scripture, um, which, we, which sees the entire Bible all about Jesus. It's one continuous story. Promise in the Old Testament, fulfillment in the New Testament. And you know what? It wasn't the reformers who invented this hermeneutic. It's Jesus' own hermeneutic. And we see that in what our brother you know, Mashanini uh, said in, his previous, in the previous talk. He, Jesus gives that Emmaus Road teaching. Luke 24, 27 and verse 44. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning, not me, not you, himself. That everything written about me, Jesus, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the three divisions of the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. So the redemptive historical hermeneutic is, is, is looking, is, is going to look at Scripture um, as either uh, as a finding the, the, the promises of Jesus fulfilled in, in the text. And then it's essentially, it's Christ-centered, it's, it's God-centered in its nature. Now, what about the apostles? Okay, isn't the fact that the apostles also did miracles, evidence that we can do miracles today. No. Jesus granted the apostles unique authority that was connected to the extraordinary, extraordinary role um, in the laying of the foundations of the church, which Ephesians 2.20 explicitly says, the, the, the apostles and the prophets lay the foundation 
of the church. And what's the nature of this foundation? Well, the, the apostles received the gospel. Okay, they were recipients of special revelation from God that would form the canon of the New Testament. And the nature of that apostolic gospel, which they received from Christ, was good news. Okay, it's a message. The heart of the gospel is a message. Okay, it's not doing miracles. And what is that, that message? Well, it is the forgiveness of sins through Christ's atoning work on the cross. In other words, it's all the work of God and God alone. It's all His work. We don't... It, it's an oxymoron to say, well, we do the gospel. Okay? It's, what really that is, is betraying, it's a, it's a confusion of the law and gospel distinction, which I'll get into in a moment. So instead, the purpose of the apostolic miracles was to confirm the truth of the gospel that they received from Christ, which they had laid the foundation of the church. And then... The church would be built upon that. And now the, the nature of a foundation, if you've ever been a part of a building project, when you lay the foundation, what typically do you do next? You start putting bricks on that foundation and you build up. What you don't do is you don't keep on building foundation. Otherwise the building not going to get built. So what this is telling us here is that it's evidence from the scripture that the the nature of the apostolic and prophetic office is that it's temporary. Okay, that, the foundation was laid once. Once it's laid, the function's over. They fulfilled their, their purpose because what they came for, we've got here in, in the canon. So the miracles... That they did, they, the apostles did, ser, served as signs of the divine authority in confirming the gospel message. And this is exactly why 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12 says that signs and wonders are evidence of being a true apostle. Now, because the office of the apostle was temporary, after the apostolic era, one then should not expect that signs and wonders are part of the ordinary Christian life. Hey, neither should one expect new revelation. Because if there are no apostles and there are no prophets, well, then we do not then ordinarily expect signs and wonders and new revelation. And this is the testimony of church history, even starting from the church fathers themselves. They acknowledged this is the generation soon after the apostolic era. They were conscious in themselves in the first couple of centuries that the, of the uniqueness of the apostolic office and that signs and wonders were like we see in the Bible were no longer a part of the ordinary Christian life. So the, what this means is that especially in our context, we've got to reject with contempt, quite frankly, the notion of modern day apostles and prophets and simply because no one alive today fits the biblical criteria for uh, an apostle, a true apostle. What's the biblical criteria? Well, we see it in Acts 1.22. Apostles were appointed by Jesus himself. They had to be a witness of his resurrection. Now, unless you lived 2,000 years ago, well, there's no chance that you 
checked any of those boxes. God has, has not appointed any other apostles since the, the New Testament era. And what we see even within the New Testament canon, this transition taking place. Who was Paul's understudy? It was Timothy. Now, one would expect, if the apostolic office continued, that Paul would ordain Timothy as an apostle. You know what? He doesn't do that. What is Timothy ordained as? An elder or a pastor. Okay? He's ordained to the ordinary office, offices that we are for the church today. Now, it's also important to see that the continuationist position makes a false equivalent between the signs and wonders of Jesus and uh, the apostles and the gifts of the Spirit that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Now, we need to understand these are qualitatively different from each other. Okay, we believe that God distributes the gifts of the Spirit for the building up of the church. In 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and we will wholeheartedly believe in the gifts of wisdom and discernment and teaching and preaching and leadership and acts of mercy and celibacy and encouragement and generosity. But the revelatory gifts like prophecy and tongues and, and miracles, well, we'd say, well, we don't, those, because of the reasons just explained, we don't believe in those anymore. Um, because we'll get to, you're looking at Revelation in the, in, in the next section for the reasons um, for that. But Jesus' ministry is, is in a different category to the gifts of the Spirit. Okay? Because Jesus' ministry reveals his divinity, ultimately, his identity as, as the Messiah. And, and the gifts have been given to, to us from the Spirit to build up the church. Now, regarding the continuationists, uh, Christology, okay, the kenosis theory, Jesus laid aside his divinity, ministered as a man, empowered by the Spirit. Well, this understanding of, of Jesus' uh, ministry is, is, is really foreign to historic Orthodox Christology. In fact, it's, it's alien to um, uh, the historic creed, specifically the Chalcedonian creed, which um, is, 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 contains orthodox belief concerning what we, who we believe Jesus to be, and that it fails to capture the mystery of the incarnation. Now, the, the mystery of the incarnation is that Jesus was and is truly God and truly man. None of his divine attributes were removed at his incarnation. In fact, Saying the language of the Chalcedonian Creed, nothing was ever subtracted from Jesus in the incarnation. Only his, his humanity was added. And so the nature of the mystery of the incarnation is that sometimes we do see Jesus' divinity displayed in his, in his ministry on earth. We see glimpses of this. We see his omnipotence. Displayed through his raising of the dead, through his healing of the sick, through his calming of the storms. Hey, we see his omnipresence revealed hey, through his various post-resurrection appearances at various places. Okay, we see evidence of his omniscience, that 
He knew the thoughts of people's hearts. He knew future events. And obviously, this wasn't all, at the, all, all the time because he was truly man as well. And this is just a part of the mystery of the incarnation. He's, and, and we also found that Jesus certainly ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's a part of his messianic anointing. But Jesus' anointing was a unique anointing as the Messiah. And as John 3, 34 says, Jesus was filled with the Spirit without measure. So what that means for us is that well, we, none of us can compare the filling of the Spirit that we have as believers in Jesus to the filling that Jesus has because his was without measure. He was filled without measure as the Messiah. We can't compare our little lives and, and Jesus' um, ministry of the Spirit. So in the light of this, how sh- let's go back to that Mark 4 text. And how should one responsibly interpret it through a redemptive historical um, hermeneutic? Well, the fact that Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, what is that showing us? He's God. Hey, this is why the disciples asked in verse 41, Who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Who is that? This is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is Yahweh himself. And from a redemptive historical um, hermeneutic, well, we say it's, it's the fulfillment of Psalm 107, 28 to 29, which, which says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Now, only the omnipotent Lord of creation can calm the storm and the waves. The one who speaks a word and created the whole universe, only he has the power to speak and bring creation into submission to his will. And it it, it shows us this fundamental distinction between creator and creature. Only God can speak things into existence. Okay, none of this nonsense that we hear today about, you know, speaking into your own reality and it is, it is, Firstly, we don't have the, the ability to do so. We don't have the authority to speak things into to being. And frankly, it is improper for us to assume to do so. This is an attribute of God himself. Hey, we, are the, the, we are creature. He is creator. Only he has the ability and the authority to speak things into being. And Jesus does. And that's precisely why he's God. In, the, in Mark 4. Now the disciples, their reaction in verse 41, they, they filled with fear. Why are they filled with fear? Because they realize exactly who is in their presence. They knew their Old Testaments. They would have been familiar with Psalm 107. And they knew that only Yahweh has the ability to calm the waves and the sea. So the point of this text, you know, contra to the continuationists, is not that we too can calm the storms in your lives and do great wonders and all that stuff. It instead, it 
points us to Jesus. It points us to the one who is the Lord over all of creation and therefore the one who is worthy to be worshipped and feared and trusted. And what we see essentially here is a God-centered interpretation, a gospel-centered hermeneutic. And it's revealing to us what God has done for us. And the response is that well, we rest in this truth. Now let me just say for a moment here, speaking to this whole law gospel distinction. And Reformed theology has a really great, makes a good distinction between law and gospel. So we would um, uh, affirm that, you know, we would affirm the necessity of the law in the Christian life. Okay, we are called to obey the moral law. Okay, we first, as a result of having received the gospel. We don't obey in order to be saved. We, uh, we uh, obey Jesus as a fruit of our justification, flowing from our belief in, in the gospel. And what we obey is contained in God's word, okay, the, the, summed up in the Ten Commandments, the law. So um, signs and wonders are not part of that obedience. There, there's no, we know we're instructed to do them. It's an unbiblical yoke that, that has been put on, on believers. And said the gospel is doing signs. The gospel is not doing stuff. It's not doing signs and wonders. It's receiving what God has already um, done through Christ. Okay, let me get to our final point here. We deal with revelation and, and prophecy. So firstly, the continuationist view, one of the fundamental beliefs in, in the continuationist system um, and this also happens to be a fundamental belief in um, the Roman Catholic system, uh, is a belief in multiple sources of special revelation. Now, Rome believes that Scripture as well as church councils and papal decrees and sacred tradition are, are sources of revelation. And so this is how it justifies extra-biblical doctrines, or we call heresies like transubstantiation, Purgatory and the Immaculate Conception of Mary. So in a, in a similar way, continuationists believe that Scripture as well as extra-biblical prophecies, be they words of knowledge, tongues and miracles, are all um, sources of revelation. And this is the reason why John Calvin in his in introduction to the Institutes called the Papists and the Anabaptists or the fanatics with the Pentecostals of, of, of his day, two sides of the same coin. Okay, and the issue here is they both believe in continuing revelation. In modern day apostles and prophets, the bearers of new revelation. In Rome, you know, the Pope today is the apostle of Christ and the continuationists, well, we know, believe in a host of self-appointed prophets and, and apostles at every tent revival meeting on every street corner here in Africa. Now, some continuationists will acknowledge that in some way a, a modern prophetic word is not equivalent to Scripture and should not uh, contradict Scripture. But in, in practice and from my experience, various prophetic words are given uh, in uh, such a way that they carry the same weight as Scripture. And they would try to bind your conscience um, to, to these words. Now, the reform view is the belief in sola scriptura. 
And this lies at the heart of the reform view concerning revelation. And, and this would utterly reject any other form of, of special revelation besides Scripture. Okay, the reformers realized that Rome's multiple sources of revelation were the reason for its host of unbiblical heresies and, and unbiblical doctrines. And at the heart of sola scriptura is that Scripture alone can bind the conscience of a believer. Okay, scripture alone forms our doctrine as the source of our authority. It's, it's completely sufficient for, uh, to sustain and build up believers. So therefore, there's no need for any other prophetic word. And this is why Hebrews 1, uh, 1 to 2 says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So what it's saying is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament prophets. Um, now that Jesus has come, God's revelation to us is complete. We can't add to God's word. It's sufficient. And this is what the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1 says, the Belgic Confession, article 7 as well says so the role of the preacher today then is not to act as a prophet who brings a new revelation but is in, instead to declare what God has already delivered to us through the apostles and so far as the preacher preaches the word of God the preacher proclaims God's word and so through and God speaks loud and clear to us today through the faithful preaching of God's word. Okay, like the Old Testament prophets, the preacher doesn't proclaim his own word, he proclaims the word of the Lord. And it's through the faithful preaching of God's word that the Holy Spirit is always at work, transforming hearts. There's no dichotomy between word and spirit, it's like the word is the dead letter and all that. The Word and the Spirit biblically always work together. The Spirit, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So let me just bring this all to, to a close here, brothers and sisters. This is an important issue. Okay, the gospel lies at the heart of this, this issue. And um, a big part of my journey out of the charismatic world was realizing that the continuationist position Read scripture in a man-centered way and places upon people an unbiblical yoke that is impossible to bear. And I've seen firsthand the pastoral, pastoral dis destruction here. Christians feeling disillusioned and feeling like failures because they've never raised a dead person. They've never seen someone get healed and seen these guys crushed with condemnation. Or seeing people damaged by supposed words of, of prophecy that are nothing more than manipulation. Now our hermeneutics and how we divide the word of God has real life consequences. And especially in pastoral and preaching ministries. Bad hermeneutics when it finds its way into the pulpit kills souls. And good hermeneutics when we correctly divide the word of truth it brings life and holds up the word of God for what it really is. That it's life-giving. That it's sufficient for our needs. That it reveals Christ and his gospel.
If we have to prove our Christianity today through signs and, and wonders and proving our supposedly s- spiritual we are, what we do is we change the gospel into a work. And instead of receiving it as the gift of grace that it truly is, and we put a, a, a yoke on people that they cannot bear, instead of receiving the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The gospel doesn't say, come to me and Go and do more miracles. Come to me and speak new prophecies. And then find yourself under condemnation when you never match up to the standards that you can never meet. Instead, the gospel declares, as Jesus proclaimed in Matthew 11, 11, 28 to, to, to 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen.